0: Hi, friends. Um, a few announcements that you're going to want to hear before we start. First, we are more than halfway through season one, and I really can't believe it. This project has honestly been so incredibly rewarding. I'm so grateful for all of your support. It's been, it's been amazing. Our plan for right now is to release the 10 episodes that we have planned for season one before we take a longer break and prepare for next season. I love putting out weekly episodes. Like If it was up to me, I would put out weekly episodes every week forever. But these babies take time to make, especially to make at a quality which we think is good, right? One that is well-researched and where we do our due diligence of reaching out to folks and things like that. So it's really hard for me and my team to uphold that week-by-week schedule when we all have jobs outside of the podcast and they just take so much time to make. So We're going to take this small break after 10 episodes, and then, of course, we will be back as soon as possible. Next, I want to thank everyone who has supported True Crime on Patreon. In full transparency, Patreon support really, really makes a difference in the time and resources that we have. And ultimately, that's going to affect how quickly we can come back for season two. For those of you who haven't heard me talk about Patreon, hear me out for just a sec. Patreon is a membership service where for as little as $5 a month, you can support everything that goes into making an episode of Truer Crime, from the time it takes to research and write each episode, to the production equipment and the editor who makes each episode sound really good. And honestly, shout out to our editor. For example, today I'm recording in my closet during a Minnesota heat wave. It is almost 100 degrees. It has been that way. And I have no air conditioning in this closet. And I'm probably going to be making frequent breaks to drink water. But our editor makes us sound amazing. And of course, there's other things too, the marketing materials that help us spread the word about these stories. So your contribution honestly supports all of that. And as a thank you, of course, we'll be uploading extras and behind the scenes that's only going to be available to our patrons. So... If you can support us on there, we so appreciate it. But if you don't have the means to support us on Patreon, sharing the show with your friends and family in real life and on social media is also incredibly helpful to the sustainability of the show. If you don't already, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, You can find us on all of those places at Truer Crime Pod. We actually went dark on Apple Podcasts last week. Like you could not access the show through Apple Podcasts. And when something like that happens, we'll communicate with you all, Via our social channels. So we'll also post tons of bonus content like pictures, swipe graphics to continue your learning and fun behind the scenes. So follow us on there. It's fun over there. We'd love to have you join the party. All right. So now it's time to hop into the story. But of course, um, I want to let you know about content warnings first. So please be aware that today's episode is going to be discussing some really, really bad anti-Black racist violence and murder as well as sexual assault. So please take care while listening. Several weeks back, I saw a photocopied directory circulating social media. Pages were stuffed with tiny print, line after line filled with information for different Black-owned businesses, restaurants and cafes, tailors and furniture stores, dentists, chiropractors, doctor's offices, even a photo booth and a movie theater. It was cool to see these all in one place, but it wasn't particularly unusual. In the year that's passed since the Minneapolis uprising last summer, I'd seen many small directories littered across Twitter and Instagram, all with tens of thousands of likes and shares. You probably did, too. By now, we all know that the COVID-19 pandemic and the murder of George Floyd spurred a spotlight on racial inequity we hadn't seen here in the States in decades. And all of this brought a tidal wave of support to Black-owned stores and shops. These business compilations are an outgrowth of that interest, a way to make shopping Black-owned easier. But what I liked about this directory in particular was that, unlike the other Instagram swipe graphics which filled my feed last summer, these businesses weren't a collection of stores located all across the country. They were instead a mix of brick and mortar businesses located in one 35-block area in the Midwest. A bustling, blackety-black-owned hub. A prosperous one. But not just because of the number of black entrepreneurs. According to Michael Harriet of The Root, the average income, employment rate, and wealth of black folks in the area is significantly higher than the national average. Reading all this was mind-boggling. It honestly sounded like some kind of futuristic, black-owned dreamland. It made me want to take a road trip, just to shop there myself. But I couldn't. Not because of the pandemic or because it was too far away, but because it didn't exist anymore. In fact, it hadn't existed for a hundred years. Because in 1921, it was burned to the ground in what historians would call the single worst incident of racist violence in American history. But how could a place like this even exist a hundred years ago? And how exactly had it met its fiery end? Their questions we'll explore today. Because this is the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre. I'm Celicia Stanton, and you're listening to Truer Crime. According to the 2020 census, fewer than eight in every 100 Oklahomans are black. It's a number which makes the state almost as white as the one I live in. No shade to Minnesota. It's just the facts. But with stats like these, you may never guess that folks once hoped that Oklahoma would be a black state. But to understand why, we have to go back to re-examine a piece of history that absolutely shocked me. You see, according to Pete Early, writing for the Washington Post, the first black folks arrived in Oklahoma during the Trail of Tears. And in case your history class failed you like it did most of us, the Trail of Tears was when white settlers forcibly removed tens of thousands of natives from their land in the southeast United States and pushed them westward into unwanted land they called Indian Territory. Ryan Smith would write for Smithsonian Magazine that the journey would be horrifyingly brutal claiming the lives of at least 11,000 Native people. And while my social studies classes certainly skimmed over this history, it was, at very least, familiar to me. What wasn't, though, was the fact that thousands of Black folks would also make the devastating trip. They were traveling alongside their enslavers, wealthy Native leaders. This piece of painful history is often forgotten or excluded, but it was how Black Americans would first arrive in Indian territory, an area we now call Oklahoma. Years passed, and according to the Oklahoma Historical Society, when the Civil War ended and slavery was officially abolished, Black folks enslaved by Native peoples in Oklahoma were now free. And the government passed new laws, which required tribes to hand out plots of land to those who had been previously enslaved. Then, in 1889, hungry for more and more expansion, the U.S. government took an area of land in central Oklahoma and started handing out plots to people who wanted them. But the interesting thing was, this land, it wasn't just offered to white folks. It was actually open to Black folks as well. And so now, with Black folks able to own their own land across the Oklahoma Territory, the Black population began to swell. Oklahoma, it seemed, was a land of opportunity. A real chance at self-determination for Black people. And so Black leaders and politicians like Edward P. McCabe began to talk about making Oklahoma a Black state. One where Black people could live together in peace, free from the deep racism that still plagued the United States after the abolition of slavery. The idea was exciting, but honestly, it was pretty much dead on arrival. And the nail in the coffin would come in 1905, when Oklahoma settlers struck oil. And where there's oil, there's money. So now white settlers seemed much more interested in the territory. And just two years later, in 1907, Oklahoma would conveniently become a state. But the work of leaders like Edward P. McCabe wasn't completely lost. While the Black state idea never caught on, Black towns did. And they'd sprung up all over Oklahoma. And one of these communities was called Greenwood. Greenwood, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was a thriving all-Black community, a petri dish of Black ingenuity. Deneen L. Brown of the Washington Post would report that Greenwood was, quote, home to a number of luxury shops. 21 restaurants, 30 grocery stores, a hospital, a savings and loan, a post office, three hotels, jewelry and clothing stores, two movie theaters, a library, pool halls, a bus and cab service, a nationally recognized school system, six private airplanes, and two Black newspapers. All of them were Black-owned. Many of the district's 10,000 Black residents owned their own homes. And while plenty of folks didn't own their own businesses, the oil boom meant that jobs in the district were plentiful. According to Pete Early, the community was home to so many Black-owned businesses and so much wealth that by 1913, Greenwood would be known as Black Wall Street. But in less than a decade, it would all be gone. Our story of how starts on Memorial Day of 1921 in a little shoeshine parlor located in downtown Tulsa. And it starts here because this is where 19 year old Dick Roland worked, shining shoes for a dime apiece. According to the Tulsa Race Riot Commission report, Roland would often collect tips, a nickel or more per customer. And for a 19 year old black teenager in 1921, this was a lot of money. A good gig for sure. And besides the fact that this particular day was a holiday, things seemed to be going as normal for Roland, shining shoes and collecting tips. And then at some point, Roland decided to leave the store for a quick bathroom break. But it's important for you to know that this wasn't because there was no bathroom at his work. There was a bathroom in the store. Roland just wasn't allowed to use it. See, this was the white area of Tulsa. So the bathrooms were white only. It meant that in order to use the bathroom, Roland needed to walk the few blocks to the Drexel building, a complex which had a colored bathroom on its top floor. It was a trip Roland had made many times before. And when he arrived at the building, he headed over to the elevator towards the back. And waiting inside the elevator was 17-year-old Sarah Page, who was working that day as an elevator attendant. It's not known whether Dick and Sarah had met each other previously, but what's important to know is that their interaction on this day would set off a chain of events so significant the effects are still felt to this day. And that's because Sarah Page was white and Dick Roland was black. Even now, no one knows exactly what happened between the two on that elevator, but based on the findings of the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, what we know for sure is that after Roland stepped onto the lift, a nearby store clerk heard a woman yell out. The clerk headed over to investigate and noticed Roland leaving the building in a hurry. Then he found Sarah Page alone in the elevator and looking clearly upset. Certain that the man he'd seen leaving had attempted to sexually assault the teenage girl, the clerk immediately alerted police. At this point in my research, my anxiety was pretty much at a 10 out of 10. Accusations of a Black man sexually assaulting a white woman, whether true or false, could quite literally mean a death sentence for the accused. And this was 34 years before 14-year-old Emmett Till would be kidnapped beaten and killed for allegedly whistling at a white woman. Dick Rowland was in danger, and he knew it. According to the commission report I mentioned earlier, the teenager would rush to his mom's house, where he hid inside with the blinds drawn. But despite his fear, Roland knew he was innocent. While theories have swirled in the century that's followed, the one most believed to be true is that Roland, while stepping onto the elevator, accidentally tripped and in trying to catch himself while falling, grabbed onto Sarah Page, who screamed. Roland, then frightened about how the situation may have looked, remember, this was 1921, would make his quick exit. And while I couldn't find any record of exactly what Sarah Page would say to police, the cops didn't necessarily seem convinced that a sexual assault had taken place. The commission report would say that they'd launch a low-key investigation. But... Despite this, the next day, Dick Rowland would be arrested and taken to the Tulsa County Courthouse as the investigation continued. And word of the elevator altercation, well, it spread quickly throughout Tulsa, eventually making its way to newspaper reporters at the Tulsa Tribune and the Tulsa World. And the Tulsa Tribune wasted no time, printing a story in that day's edition of the paper. To me, their headline read like a call to action nab negro for attacking girl in an elevator. And if the headline was meant to inspire action, it certainly did. As the afternoon stretched on, an angry crowd of white Tulsans gathered in front of the Tulsa County Courthouse where Dick Rowland was being held. The commissioner report says that talk of a lynching was making rounds through the city. And then, according to the history channel, the white mob began demanding that the sheriff let them handle Rowland themselves. The sheriff refused, but a later article by Mary Jones Parrish, a black woman who lived in Tulsa, would note that city officials weren't confident they could actually protect Roland. There was good reason for their wariness. This day, this crowd, it was coming on the heels of a different violent outburst, one that had rocked Tulsa just a year before. Pete Early, writing for the Washington Post, explains that in August of 1920, a white man named Roy Belta admitted to accidentally killing a taxi driver in a robbery gone wrong. So a bunch of people came together, a big, angry mob, and they went down to where he was being held, and they demanded that Belta be handed over to them. Eventually, getting their way, the crowd drove him through the town before lynching him. I couldn't help but think that the mob that lynched Roy Belta probably felt that what they did was right. An eye for an eye. Vigilante justice. It's a logic that's still so embedded in U.S. culture. And if Tulsans were capable of lynching a white man, well, there was no question about what they'd do to Roland if they got their way again. But Black Tulsans weren't going to just let Dick Roland get murdered. And so according to the Washington Post, a group of 25 armed Black men showed up ready to defend Roland from the group of 1,500 whites that were now surrounding the courthouse. The Tulsa Commission report says that the men offered their help to the sheriff, who said no, and so they soon after left. But just their presence for a short while, the presence of two dozen Black men with guns, it angered the mob. People in the crowd who didn't have guns left to arm themselves. And some would even try, unsuccessfully, to break into the National Guard armory. The report goes on to say that by 9.30 p.m., the crowd at the courthouse had swelled to a size of nearly 2,000, full of white folks of all ages. The sheriff tried to calm down the crowd, telling them it was time to go home, but the mob didn't care, and they'd shout down the sheriff instead. As things escalated, black folks over in Greenwood were thinking, strategizing trying to figure out what to do. How could they protect Dick Rowland? They were determined to make sure that that night in Tulsa, there would be no lynching. What ends up happening is that a group of 75 Black men make their way to the courthouse. And while this group was bigger than the last one, they were still dwarfed by the crowd. The men, armed, offered their assistance to law enforcement once again. And once again, they were refused. And then, according to the commission report, as the group was leaving, a white crowd member attempted to snatch one of the black men's guns, spurring the two to struggle over the weapon until the gun accidentally fired. And that was it. After hours and hours of rising tension, it would be this moment, just after 10 p.m. on May 31st of 1921, that things exploded. The white mob opened fire and the group of 75 returned it. But the Black folks were gravely outnumbered. With their lives at serious risk, the group pretty quickly fled, heading back towards the Black part of the city, Greenwood. The Tulsa Riot Commission reported that while the Black coalition made their escape, quote, at police headquarters, nearly 500 white men and boys, many of whom only minutes earlier had been members of the lynch mob, were sworn in as special deputies. The report goes on to say that one of those men, Laurel G. Buck, would later recount his experience, saying that the police told him to, and I'm going to quote this, get a gun and get an N-word. The details of what happened next are many. A collection of stories preserved by survivors and many more stories we won't ever hear, gone alongside the folks who witnessed them. That said, I want to share about some of the things we do know the commission report would find that before the rioters ever made it to Greenwood, they'd begun breaking into stores, stealing weapons and ammunition and indiscriminately shooting and killing any Black folks they came across in downtown Tulsa. By one in the morning, the fires began. This after hours spent shooting and breaking into businesses and homes in Black neighborhoods. One survivor, George Monroe, who had been at home with his mom and siblings, would tell the Oklahoma Historical Society years later some of what he recalled from that night.
1: When we saw coming up the walk in the front of the house off of Eastern Street, four men with torches in their hands. These torches were burning. When my mother saw them coming, she says, you get up under the bed, get up under the bed, get up under the bed. And all four of us got up under the bed. I was the last one in my sister grabbed me and pulled me under there and while I was under the bed, one of the guys coming past the bed stepped on my finger and I was as I was about to scream, my sister put her hand over my mouth so I couldn't be heard.
0: George Monroe had been only five years old. And while he and his family survived, their home would not.
1: They set our house on fire and went right straight to the curtains and set the curtains on fire.
0: And for those who escaped, fleeing to find safety, the outdoors proved to be just as dangerous. Here's Tulsa survivor Aldoris McCondashi, who was just nine years old the day of the massacre.
1: In looking out the door, I could see nothing but black, rolling smoke from the south. Mm-hmm. And people on the Linden Valley Railroad all across, about five or six breaths across the road going north. And when we left our house I was so afraid because bullets were coming down around us. The the planes were up in the air shooting down and I could hear those bullets falling and all of a sudden when we got to the track I went over the track, and there were a lot of people running, dodging the bullets, and just the frame.
0: And if you're wondering about the planes Aldoris mentioned, you heard right. The Tulsa Riot Commission would report that during the night, planes flown by white folks began firing down on Black people fleeing their homes. The planes would even drop explosives. It'd make Tulsa the first U.S. city to be bombed by airplanes. And while many would manage to escape, others weren't so lucky. One survivor, Edward Lett, would recall in an interview with historian Eddie Fay Gates that he had been with his mother and grandfather when they were approached by a white man who said, where in the hell are you going, you N-word? What happened next would stick with Edward for the rest of his life.
1: My grandpa said, we're going out of town. And he said... Not this day. You're not going out of town. Mm-hmm. Bam. Ooh. You saw your grandfather get shot. I saw him get shot. Bam. Oh. And he just tumbled. My, my mother let out a scream. Oh, you have killed my father. You killed.
0: Edward's grandfather would be one of many. Reporter Deneen L. Brown would write for the Washington Post that before the night of the massacre, there had been 15 talented Black physicians living and working in Greenwood. One of these was Dr. A.C. Jackson. Brown would write that Dr. Jackson was, quote, the most able Negro surgeon in America, according to the Mayo Brothers. The night of the massacre, it wouldn't matter that Dr. Jackson was attempting to surrender when he walked out of his home, hands raised in the air. He'd be shot and killed anyway. As I read and listened to horrifying account after horrifying account, my mind kept drifting to all the children forced to bear witness to such a traumatic event. Kenny Booker, who was only eight on the day of the massacre, recalled in an interview with Eddie Fay Gates that his sister, who was six at the time, turned to him and asked, Kenny, is the world on fire? His reply had been fearful. I don't think so, but we're in deep trouble. And they were. While many Black folks did struggle to fight back to protect their families and their property, their attempts were mostly futile. The white attackers had the numbers, the weapons, the ammunition. It left Black Tulsans with limited options. But despite this, according to the Riot Commission, the word traveling around white Tulsa was that all of this destruction, all of these murders, they were all the result of a Negro uprising which would be an almost laughable twist of the truth if it wasn't so incredibly sickening. The Oklahoma Historical Society would later share the true facts, which were that as dawn came, the white rioters went from building to building in Greenwood, forcing out the residents and holding them in internment centers against their will, looting and setting fires to the emptied homes and businesses. And then finally, it was over. After 18 hours, 18 hours of sheer terror, martial law was declared. The National Guard arrived and most of the white rioters headed home. But it was all much too late. According to the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, over the course of the massacre, white rioters had destroyed the entirety of Black Wall Street. Businesses, churches, schools, even Greenwood's hospital Over 1,200 homes were burned to the ground, leaving thousands of survivors homeless. And while the Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics would report that 36 people had lost their lives, it's now believed that the actual number may have been nearly 10 times that. And still, the front page headline of the Tulsa World would read the next day, Two whites dead in race riot. Many more whites are shot. Predictably, the History Channel would report that other than a few Black folks brought up on riot charges, no one was ever prosecuted or held accountable for the crimes committed during the massacre. Black Tulsans, who had lost their homes, were eventually moved to the Tulsa fairgrounds and forced to live in tents. Pete Early writes that, quote, For nearly two months, Black folks were not allowed to walk the streets unless they had a green card with the words police protection and Black people held at the fairgrounds who did not have jobs were ordered to help clean up after the riot. The scale of the lies, the manipulation, the distortion, the gaslighting, it was honestly hard to wrap my head around. And many white Tulsans would not even attempt to hide the truth. According to Alexis Clark, some white folks were just so full of glee about what had happened that they'd even sell postcards featuring photographs of the massacre's carnage. In the aftermath of the tragedy, survivors started trying to pick up the pieces. Many of those who lost their homes and businesses filed riot-related insurance claims, hoping to recoup some of what had been taken from them. $1.4 million worth of claims would be filed. A dollar amount that'd be valued at over $20 million today. Every single claim would be denied every single claim with one exception, a plea from a white store owner who'd received funds because guns were stolen from his shop. It was also devastating. People lost their livelihoods and the consequences would ripple out for generations. The reality is that we live in a country where, according to the Economic Policy Institute, the median white family has 12 times the wealth of the median black family. And the biggest driver of that racial wealth divide is home ownership. So for many Black Tulsans, losing their home, it was akin to destroying even their descendants' opportunities for wealth. And while many Black folks would attempt to rebuild Black Wall Street and the Greenwood District, it would all never be the same again. Economic historian Jeremy Cook would write for The Atlantic that, in 1920, Black Tolsons were more likely to own their own home, to be married, and to have a job than Black folks in similar cities. But according to an economic study Cook completed, by 1940, quote, the likelihood of a Black Tolson being married was 6% lower. The likelihood of being employed, 9% lower. And average earnings from employed Black Tolsons was 12% lower than if the massacre had never happened. Despite the devastation to the Black Tolson community, many folks weren't nearly as gleeful as the white folks who'd sell the postcards. And they would try to pretend that the massacre never happened at all. History.com author Alexis Clark would write that those in power quickly realized that the massacre looked really bad for a city that hoped to keep its status as an oil boom town. And it obviously just reflected really poorly overall on white Tulsans, many of whom didn't want to admit they had known folks who had been involved. And so as Scott Ellsworth writes in his book, Death in a Promised Land, quote, in many ways, Tulsa tried to cover up what really happened during the riot. The Tulsa County Historical Society did not have any photographs or accounts of the riot. Newspaper accounts about the riot had been torn from the city's archives. City documents, including police files, had disappeared. For decades, the massacre would remain the city's best-kept secret. But then, according to Alexis Clark, the 1990s brought a new wave of attention after Black Tulsa leaders pushed lawmakers to form a commission to finally thoroughly investigate the destruction and the bloodshed. The commission's report would be released in 2001, 80 years after the fateful events. The work was an incredible historic achievement, and also one that helped bring attention to another still unanswered question. Where are the bodies? Following the massacre, those who lost their lives were said to have been quickly buried in unmarked mass graves. We still don't know where those graves are. But the commission's report highlighted several possible spots. And according to the Tulsa World, as of June 1st, 2021, the city of Tulsa had begun the process of exhuming a potential site, the first step before working with DNA analysts to hopefully identify who the remains belong to. Here we are, a century later, still coming up short. And don't get me wrong, these achievements are important, necessary, of course, and yet Also, so, so late. Overdue. It made me think of all the justices delayed for far longer than what's fair. Far longer than it needs to be. I feel like so much could be different if we actually took heed of the lessons that history teaches us. And this story, this story about the Tulsa Race Massacre, it's one I think could teach us some things. And, you know, as I researched and wrote this episode, I couldn't help but think of the Black Lives Matter critics who cruelly claim that BLM actually stands for burn, loot, murder. A particularly sick joke, considering the fact that it was 10,000 white folks, not Black, who are responsible for the deadliest race massacre in U.S. history. Burning, looting, and indiscriminately murdering Black Tulsans in an 18-hour-long act of domestic terrorism. And for what? To maintain the racial order? To keep Black folks in their place? It made me wonder, for all the things that have changed in the last 100 years, what has steadfastly remained the same? It's an important consideration, however uncomfortable. Because if we rush to forget our history, or worse, to actively erase it, aren't we just destined to repeat the same things? over and over again. Hold on. Before you go, I noticed something and I want to chat about it quick. One of the awesome things about this podcast that helps me know that I'm not actually just speaking into the void in my closet is that we get some pretty great analytics. We can see how many of you listen and for how long, cool stuff like that. And I couldn't help but notice, but after the episode ends, a lot of you stop listening. And honestly, I get it. I'm a credit skipper too, but I want to let you know why you should listen to our credits. Every episode, we follow up these stories with action items, ways you can take action on the things that you've learned or support the folks highlighted in that week's story. So... This week, I wanted to direct you to learning more about the Tulsa Race Massacre. Listen, this episode is certainly not a very detailed, comprehensive overview of everything that happened. Um, There's so many events we just couldn't fit into the episode, so many things that occurred. And we really want to make sure that we are actively supporting the preservation of this history. The history of the Tulsa Race Massacre was suppressed and folks tried to erase it for so, so long. So preserving this history is still incredibly important. If you want to help out with that, you can check out the Eddie Faye Gates Tulsa Race Massacre collection at the Gilcrease Museum. Eddie Faye Gates conducted the interviews from which all of today's audio was pulled. And she's actually one of the main reasons that so many primary sources related to the Tulsa Race Massacre exist at all. According to Tulsa World, Miss Gates donated her extensive collection of photographs, audio and video interviews, newspaper clippings and handwritten research notes all to the Gilcrease Museum, because it was important to her that the information was kept in North Tulsa and accessible for viewing and research by descendants and really just the community at large. You can view some of the collection and donate to the Gilcrease Museum at gilcrease.org. And before I close out today's episode, as always, I want to highlight a few resources that were essential to the creation of today's episode. First, the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa race riot of 1921 and their report, which I reference as the main primary source while writing this episode. From 1997 to 2001, the sole job of the commission was to collect information on the Tulsa race massacre. And then they put out this 200 page report and it's the result of all that work. And this report's very existence is exceptional considering the attempts that have been made to erase this event from history. Um, So I really highly recommend checking it out. It is an incredible body of work. Next, we want to extend a thank you to the Oklahoma Historical Society for allowing us to use the audio from the Tulsa Race Riot Commission interviews available in their audio archives. You can find the full videos of the interviews used today on their YouTube channel, which is called Oklahoma Historical Society Audio Archives. Finally, Of course, we want to thank all the survivors who have bravely shared their stories throughout the years. The only reason for accurate information about the Tulsa Race Massacre is because of them. Because these folks decided to continue telling their stories, even when so much of the country refused to listen. As always, you can find a full list of sources used in the show notes on our website, truercrimepodcast.com. And you can follow us on social media at truercrimepod. See you next week.